Well, um, this morning, I, I want to jump straight into um, the text here, and because uh, there's, there's, there's a bit we're going to cover, but, um, but we're really just continuing from last week, and I want to, um, as we go into it, what I love about this section here is that, once again, Peter is going to remind the church, and he's going to say, I'm reminding you yet again. We need to be reminded all the time of these truths. And so as we look at, we're going to be jumping into chapter 3 here. We're going to be in verse 1, looking through verse 7. Um, and then we're going to kind of leapfrog over some, and then we'll come back next week to some others. Um, but I want to pray for our time in the Word, that the, that the Lord would lead us into truth today, that He'd lead us uh, into His Word, that His Word would be that light to our path that we need, uh, and help us to not only just understand what's being said here, but also have it being pressed into our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that you've given it to us as a gift to be a guide to us and to give us even the power of the gospel to work in our hearts. We don't change on our own. We don't change just by simply understanding things logically, but we change by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, the power of the gospel transforming us. Truth that renews our minds and changes us. And so we need that this morning as we open your word. We need your word to conform us into the image of Jesus, to transform us, to do spiritual heart surgery on us so that we are different. To help us, Holy Spirit, guide us and lead us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So chapter 3, verse 1. Peter says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you. So he's probably referring to 1 Peter. The second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, both of these letters, I'm stirring you up. I'm stirring up your sincere uh, mind by way of reminder. I want to stir you up by reminding you of some things. So he's already repeating himself from chapter 1. And I want to do this, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers are going to come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. These people are going to say, where's the promise of his coming? How come Jesus hasn't returned yet? Where's he at? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things in life are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Nothing's changed. Why do you guys keep putting your hope and faith in Jesus? Nothing's changed. For they deliberately, Peter says, overlook this fact. That the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the word of God being formed or uh, forming the, the, the waters and the earth. By means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished, so the flood from Genesis 6. But by the same word, that same word that created the heavens and the earth, the same word that brought that flood, by that same word, the heavens and earth that now exist, so today, are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. 
In a little bit, we're going to jump down to verse 11, but right now we're just going to unpack this a bit. So Peter, again, is reminding them that his main job and his main goal is to remind them. That's what he wants to remind them of. My job is to remind you. This is the second letter I'm writing to you. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminders so that you can remember the predictions of the prophets and the apostles. And this is why, for me, I've, I've said this over the years, for the last nine years, uh, I never want to see myself as the CEO of Life Mission Church, but the CRO, the Chief Reminding Officer. My main job from Sunday to Sunday, from all these different, you know, from counseling and appointments, my job is to remind us. My job is to remind my wife, my kids. And for all of you, that's, this is your primary job with what God has given you in your marriage, with your kids, your coworkers, other believers in your life. Your chief job is to remind them of the gospel. Parents, always make that your number one. Spouses, make that your number one. To always remind the people that God has brought into your life, remind them of the goodness of God through Jesus Christ. We are to stir each other up by way of reminder, by reminding us of God's word and promises that were given from the prophets and the apostles, the Old and New Testament. And we're to always, always, always be reminding each other of who Christ is, what he's done for us, and now who we are because of him. We need to remind each other of the promises of Christ to have those in the forefront of our minds. Those are the things that transform us and change us, change our actions, change our attitudes. They change everything about us. And so for the second time in this short letter, Peter's going to remind them that his aim is to remind them and stir them up, even as we saw a chapter ago, in even the most basic fundamentals of Christian living. I coach um, high school baseball. So these, these boys are older, you know, 14 to 18 years old. And they get really annoyed when we do drills that focus on the fundamentals. Because, you know, they're 17 now, so they've got it. They've, they've got this, uh, coach, I know how to do that. No. But they seem to forget because we are forgetful people. We're prideful people. We kind of wander and think, oh, I've got this. They seem to forget that even Major League Baseball players do the fundamentals every single day for a lot longer than we do at our little practice at high school. All right? They get there. They're, they're at the ballpark eight, nine hours a day. They don't just show up at game time. And these are professionals. But they hit off the tee. They do basic footwork, basic glove work. And so I tell our boys, boys, we'll stop doing the fundamentals when you stop forgetting to do the fundamentals. But until you do them perfectly and perpetually, I'm going to keep reminding you of the fundamentals, and we're going to keep practicing the fundamentals, even though they're boring. They just want to get, and they just want to do batting practice and just hit bombs all day. That's all they want to do. They don't want to do the fundamentals. But see, all of us, every single person, we all, we all leak. Do you know what I mean when I say that? Like, it's like you're a balloon right, with a, a slow leak. Or you got a tire with a slow leak, and you don't really notice it, but over time you go, hey, the tire's flat. How, when did that happen? Right? We, we leak slowly. We, we, we grow in maturity. We grow in patience. We grow in uh, long-suffering. We grow in our humility. We're doing pretty good, but there's a slow leak. We've left the door open a little bit, to use our kind of wall analogy from a couple weeks ago. 
Something snuck in, a little complacency, a little arrogance, a little pride, um, some of those things, a little bitterness. And so all of a sudden, that humility, that patience, that love, it just kind of slowly starts leaking, and we're shrinking, shrinking, shrinking. We don't really realize it, and we leak. So even though we've grown in this maturity, right, you're a 17-year-old bass player, you're not a five-year-old anymore, you've grown, but we slowly leak because we leave the door unlocked, we let the air out slowly. And this is why Peter has said, I want to remind you, no matter how mature you are, this is from a couple weeks ago, no matter how mature you are, that you need to grow in and be consistent in the basics. Which is what he pointed to, is virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. Christian, every single one of us, every single one of us needs to grow in these right now. Right now, we all need We all need these traits. These are the fundamentals of Christian character. And they're not the only ones. This isn't like the only things that Peter thinks are important. Paul has his own list of these kind of fruits of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 to 23. Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love, which Peter also has that one in there. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And even those lists, you combine Peter and Paul's, that's not exhaustive either. Yet these are the fundamentals. Right? There's not just two or three fundamentals. Right? To go back to baseball, there's not just hitting fundamentals. There's also fielding. There's also running. There's base running. Right? There's not just like one set of fundamentals that Peter's focusing on. He's telling us we need to grow in all the fundamentals, the, 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 the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And we would do well to always be reminded of these qualities so that we can grow strong in our character and our faith, working out our salvation with fear and trembling as we aim to confirm our calling and election, as Peter said. So church, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, I'm never going to grow tired of preaching the fundamentals because that is one of the jobs I'm called to do, to stir all of us up, myself included, I stir myself up for these things too. I labor over the, some of these things at times. To stir us up by way of reminder of these qualities that no matter how mature you are, no matter how mature I am or think I am, we all need to grow in these fundamentals. That's why Peter is reminding them for the second time in this letter, this is my job. I want to remind you of these things. Now one of the things he wants to them to be reminded of why he wants them to be reminded of these qualities is to beware of scoffers that are coming into the world because the world has no shortage of people who are going to scoff at or mock or make fun of or just shake their head at our faith and what Christ has taught. And this is everywhere. Everywhere. It was everywhere 2,000 years ago. It's everywhere now. We're probably more aware of it now because now we've got Technology, we've got the ability to see more of these scoffers and hear more of their voices and their message grows faster than before because of technology. And it is growing and it's gonna continue to grow. We have to continually prepare ourselves more and more. Prepare ourselves as we remind ourselves with gospel truths. That's how we prepare ourselves, to remind ourselves, bury gospel truths in our minds over and over and over again. We have to be stirred up by way of reminder of our need to grow in these fruits of the Holy Spirit 
And we need to grow in those fruits of the Spirit because false teaching is all around us. And that false teaching is going to tempt us in all kinds of different various ways. As we saw a couple weeks ago, they're, they're crouching in our hearts. They're finding where that leak is. They want to look for where that unlocked door is. That's what they're looking for. This looking for a desire in your heart that they can feed, a need that they can fill, an idol, a frustration, some bitterness, some kind of lust of the flesh or lust for financial freedom or relief, some kind of lust for sexual satisfaction or vindication or for acceptance. Anything to take our love, our dependence, our devotion, or our trust away from God and his ways. We've looked quite a bit at those different types of false teachers and versions of false teachings that we tend to fall for. Today we're going to look at a specific attack that Peter focuses on. Looking at verse 3 again, he says about these, the specific group of mockers, he says, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And they're going to say, where's the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They're mocking. They're saying, where's your God? Look at the world. Look at what's going on in the world. Where is he? You claim that this God is involved and he cares and he loves. He's going to return Yet all the church fathers, they're probably specifically talking about the church fathers, maybe also the prophets. The scoffers are saying in general, the people who prophesied this, they're all gone. Nothing's happened, so what's going on here? But it's a great point that Peter's making here. He's pointing out that though there will be many scoffers who just want to look at Christians and think we're just wackos, people are going to mock and say, where is this invisible God of yours, this imaginary friend you have? The world's been going on for thousands of years. Nothing's changed. We've never even seen him. This Jesus guy says he's going to come back. So where is he? You, you guys are just crazy. You guys realize you're crazy? You guys are foolish. And though when they make that argument, that point, they feel like they've succeeded in their little game of gotcha. But Peter says they overlook this one fact. They deliberately overlook this one foundational truth. And this can oftentimes be an inroad for us, even for positive engagement. But it's very least something that we can remind ourselves to strengthen our own self when we start kind of believing some of this kind of mocking and scoffing. Peter points to the simple truth of creation. Creation is something that, if you really honestly consider it, it's an inescapable point that must be addressed. I'm not saying that a conversation between a, a Christian and an atheist or an uh, evolutionist is going to be easy. I'm not saying that, or that it'll be necessarily a slam dunk if you just bring, oh, what about creation? Uh, that's not usually how it works. However, Peter is saying that they deliberately overlook that because it's some pretty big evidence that you have to be very creative with if you want to try to ignore it. So think about this in this way, and this isn't a perfect example, but uh, in a criminal investigation or a court case, physical evidence is of monumental importance, to have physical evidence. Circumstantial evidence is kind of more vague. It's more like potential. It's not very rock solid in a criminal case. So here's, here's an example. Let's say there's a crime that's committed here at Classical Academy. Classical Academy had 
C.H. Spurgeon's personal Bible here in one of the classrooms on loan, and it went missing. And it went missing on a Sunday around 12.30 p.m. Now, of course, I was in the building. I've got keys. The circumstantial evidence shows that I, I might be the culprit. I, it's very true. I might be the culprit. I had the means. Right, I've got keys. I had the opportunity. I'm always here on Sunday afternoon. And I've got the motive. I'd like a copy of Spurgeon's personal Bible. So people can hear those things, that circumstantial evidence, and say, wow, that makes a lot of sense. It must be Joby. I mean, look, he's got all three things there. It, it must be him. So Peter's saying these scoffers come in with circumstantial evidence. Where's God? He hasn't returned, and he said he would. Look, the world's the same. Life moves on. Clearly, clearly this means Jesus is not God, and God is not real. You can't even see him in the first place. And then people hear that and say, wow, that, that kind of makes sense. Where is Jesus? It's been 2,000 years. Can't see God. This is starting to kind of add up. The circumstances seem to prove that this argument is correct. And they're scoffing at this. Now, to be fair, to be fair, if you only had, only had circumstantial evidence to convict me of a crime done at classical on a Sunday at 12 or 12.30, it's true that it's possible that it is me. I mean, I'm here, I've got keys. So it's possible. So if you only have circumstantial evidence, it is true that it is a possibility that it's me. But it's far from a proven fact, and it's very shaky to build your case upon. So to be fair to say, atheists maybe, or those who mock our faith in general, it's true based solely on the circumstantial evidence, solely on their argument, if that's all that there is, if that's all there was, that maybe, maybe Jesus won't come back, maybe God isn't real if you base it solely on that circumstantial evidence. But don't worry, I'm not stopping there, nor do I think that is a possibility because we don't just have circumstantial evidence. We've got something more. That's why those accusations should not shake us. They should not worry us. I know that I didn't steal Spurgeon's Bible, so I shouldn't be shaken by that because I know. If the circumstantial evidence against me is there, yes, I'm here on Sunday at noon, but if there was physical evidence that not only proved that it wasn't me, right, so you got all the circumstantial evidence points that it's me, but now you find some physical evidence that proves that it was not me. Maybe there's video surveillance that shows I never went in the classroom where that Bible is. Fingerprints are found that weren't mine. And if the evidence proved that it was someone else, then all the circumstantial evidence in the world must be interpreted through those physical facts. Somehow all that really convincing stuff, that well-argued stuff, that's got to submit itself to the facts. So you can't say, I know the video surveillance showed that Joby never went in the room, but since he was here, it still might be him. You have to throw that out all of a sudden. Now you must say, wow, it seemed, it really seemed like it could have been him. It made sense. But with the evidence, it, it must not be him. So we have to move on from that argument and find a different solution. We have to find out who it really actually was. But in the courts, say with my fake case here, even with solid evidence, someone else's fingerprints, video surveillance, prosecutors are still going to 
find creative ways to suppress that hard evidence. Get that evidence thrown out of court. Oh, it was gathered illegally. All kinds of things call into question the real evidence. They're still going to try to suppress that truth and overlook key pieces of hard evidence. So just because the facts are there doesn't mean that they're going to stop there. Oh, wow, you got me. No, their job is to try to suppress that truth and try to argue out of it. So here's where Peter's going. Scoffers can say all they want. They can say all they want. They can point at all the circumstantial evidence in the world. Jesus hasn't returned. God's invisible. Look at war. Look at death, pain, atrocities, cancer, rampant sin in the world. Lots of circumstantial evidence that God's not involved. God doesn't care. God's not real. But, Peter says, they purposely overlook this one fact. This one crucial piece of physical evidence that God exists. And Peter says, just look around. Look at creation. Look at this creation of, of life. Of love. Did, did love just appear out of nowhere? Like, you, you, you guys have been in love with a, a spouse or your kids. You think that just came to existence magically? We think of love. We think of the affection we have for each other. You think of just things like oxygen. Like, we just have this perfect environment where we can live and thrive. Our complex bodies, how an eyeball works. The fact that these bodies are like 90% water and yet we're walking around. I mean, that's the weirdest thing. I feel like we should just look like, like water beings or whatever. But that we, we run off impulses of electricity. Even though we're 90% water, we run off impulses of electricity that pumps a heart. How nothing suddenly just exploded. So we got nothing and it suddenly just exploded and became something. Now these random new single cells eventually evolved into these complex machines that even know how to have a deep care and love and affection for each other to become self-aware of morality and a higher power. That's a big fact to overlook right there. You got to work really hard to make that one go away. Church, the physical evidence is here. Creation proves that God is real. And so somehow all of that other circumstantial evidence that makes us wonder, where is God in all of this stuff? All that circumstantial evidence must bow and submit to this physical evidence. This last summer I was doing um, our fight club with our baseball boys and, uh, you know, more than half of these boys aren't believers and so I try to find these inroads. And this is kind of a way that I used this very thing that Peter's saying, this kind of fact uh, that is easy for us to overlook that is, uh, helps us to have a window into the reality that God is real. And we were sitting around uh, outside and I pointed to my house and I said, boys, well, look at my house. Like, do you think that house just appeared out of nowhere or just slowly evolved and turned into a house? And they're laughing. They're like, coach, come on, for reals. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm, I, I want to know. Is that what you think happened? They're like, no. I'm like, how do you know? Like, because it's there. It makes sense. It's, it's organized. Someone designed it. I go, ah. I said, I said, boys, just look around. Look at these trees we're seeing. Look at the, the sun right there. Do you think these things just appeared out of nowhere? 
I'll tell you what, the way your body works is far more complex and more complicated than that 65-year-old house right there. Right? It's been standing for 65 years, but creation, I mean, we've been living like this with these complex bodies for a lot longer than 65 years. Do you think we just all of a sudden appeared out of nowhere? That we just kind of learned how to build ourselves? That house didn't build itself. It didn't just slowly like wind and storms came and all of a sudden stacked, you know, lumber on top of each other and shingles and oh wow, crazy. Over a certain amount of years, all these storms put all these houses together. That's not how it works, boys. So we talked about it. And so I said, so boys, what do you think what do you think that means? And from their own mouths, not from my mouth, from their own mouths, they're going, Well, it seems like someone must have created all this. I'm going, Yeah, someone did. Now, if that's true, what do you think that means? And we kind of talk a little bit, and someone eventually says something like, we should probably pay attention to him. I'm going, ooh, yeah, bingo, bingo. That's what Peter's talking about here. If you can somehow, and I know it's not that simple, you know, a lot of people have gone 40 years just having a wall up with this kind of stuff. Um, But that's kind of his point he's making. If we can even appeal to the most simplest facts, that can be an inroad even into conversations. R.C. Sproul, however, says... This is the reality that we deal with, with people who have hardened their hearts towards this. People tend to have selective memories. They remember what they want, but they forget what they want to forget. So it's not simply the words of the prophets and apostles that the scoffers forget, but it's the very power of God over creation. That's why we suppress truth, because we don't want to submit to the power of God. We want to live by our own power, our own intellect, our own set of morals and values. This is why we suppress the truth. Now, Paul addresses the same kind of overlooking. This is a big section of Scripture we're going to read through. So if you have your Bible, I'd like you to open up to Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Paul used some very similar language as Peter. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, Paul says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness they suppress the truth. They push the truth down. They say, I don't, I don't want to deal with that truth. No, 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 no. No, I don't, I don't, don't, don't tell me about that. I don't want to hear about that. They suppress the truth. I don't care about the evidence. I'm going to suppress the truth. Verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them. God has made himself known. Just look at creation. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes. So there's an acknowledgement. God is invisible. Yes, we know that. That's the circumstance we're living in. God is invisible, but his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since, what? The creation of the world in the things that have been made. So you look around, just like Peter saying, look around, God has made himself known very clearly. There's no excuse. It's there. Look at the house. It didn't get there magically. Right? So this has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, therefore then, they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they, they knew that he's out there, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but instead they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. They claimed to be wise, but they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Started worshiping nature and creation, their own bodies, rather than worshiping God. So therefore, because of that, because they hardened their hearts towards God, chose to suppress truth and ignore him, therefore God gave them up. He said, that's what you want? I will give that to you. 
He gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God, they suppressed that truth and exchanged it for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So for this reason, God gave them up to to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, they suppressed that truth that God exists, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Now in verse 29 and forward, there's a list. We're going to come back to this list a bit later, but I want to read through this list. The way that some of these sins are grouped together, I I just want us to think about this because when we think about people who suppress the truth, we usually think about the worst of the worst out there. We usually are thinking about the other people, those, those people out there. But I want to look at this list because all these people have somehow exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And this is what we do when we leave the door open, we start believing some of these false teachings in our lives, some of these things that lure us, we start exchanging truth for a lie. We suppress the truth of God and we start going after an idol. We start going after what our flesh wants. So, Oftentimes we look at this and we think of the most extreme sins, but I want you to see that all these people are suppressors of truth. So they were filled with all manner, not just the worst kind of manner, not whatever, but all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. They're full of envy. Have you ever envied? You ever wanted something you didn't have? Wanted something that someone else had? They're full of envy, murder, strife. Have you ever caused problems? Problems in relationships, in your marriage, division, animosity, deceit. Have you ever lied or not been forthcoming about something? Maliciousness. They're gossips and slanders. Right? We don't really think too much. We don't, eh, it's not a big deal. Gossip and slander is wicked before the Lord. They're haters of God. They're insolent. Insolent means to have a rude or arrogant lack of respect. They're haughty, prideful. They're boastful. They're inventors of evil. They're disobedient to their parents. Kids, I want you to hear that clearly. It is important for you to honor your parents because in doing so, you honor the Lord. They're foolish. They're faithless. They're heartless. They have no compassion for other people. They're ruthless. They have no empathy or care for others. They're just ruthless. They don't care what you think. They don't care how you feel. They're just ruthless. And though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice those things, they deserve to die by God's punishment, they not only themselves do them, but they also approve of those who practice those things. They say, ah, it's fine, no big deal. Church, if we can ignore the reality of God being the creator, we can open ourselves to any kind of lie. We leave a lot of doors open if we don't think that we need to submit ourselves to the creator of the universe. Anytime we're tempted with sin, remind yourself, God is the creator of this entire universe. How dare me flirt with this flesh? 
with this sin, with the desires in my heart that are ungodly. He is the creator of the universe. What am I thinking right now? That one truth can bring you back to square one and due north. God, you are the creator. You've created me. Help me to repent of this. Because if it's true that he's a creator, Peter says we ought to take that God serious. Look what he says in verse 6. That by means of these, God's word created the, the, the universe, brought about the flood. By that same means, that same word, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. So we know the same God with the same word that created everything also brought about a flood. So this God who created all things, he also punished he also brought his wrath because God will not be mocked. He will not be scoffed at. He will not just sit idly by and let you scoff at him forever. Now the circumstantial evidence seems to show that God does just sit back and let scoffers rule the world, doesn't it? That's what it looks like. Where, where's God in all this? Where's God in the Ukraine right now? Where's God in, in our own hurts and our own pains and sufferings? Why are people getting away with so much? Why is our culture changing the way it is? Is God even paying attention? Does he even care? So when scoffers come in and say, where's God? It starts to kind of settle in our hearts a little bit and our brains because, well, I mean, they're not wrong. He hasn't come back. And things do seem to be getting worse. The circumstances seem to be proving their point. But then Peter stops us. He says, no, no. Think about the hard evidence. Think about the truth as given from the Old Testament prophets, the New Testament apostles. Think of the commands and teachings of Christ. He is the creator, and that means we must be mindful to honor him and remind ourselves what he has taught us because he is real, and he will not tolerate mocking and scoffing forever. He may take his time as he wishes for his good purposes, he may do things in his ways that we don't necessarily like, but he will not tolerate this mocking and scoffing forever. So in the meantime, church, we walk by faith and not by sight. We put our trust and our hope in the promises of God given to us through the word of God. And in all that, we're gonna see God working in us, shaping us, forming us, conforming us to the image of Christ. We're going to look more at the timing of the Lord's patience next week. But just because he's patient and allows for evil and hardship now does not mean that he will do that forever. So Peter points to creation. This gives us a starting point even in our own faith and also to expose the false teachings that we do believe as well as a way for us to engage in conversation with those who don't believe. But then Peter has his therefore. And this is an important therefore for us. This is the thing that we need to walk away from today as we think about this truth. Verse 11, since, which is similar to therefore, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, since we know that God's wrath is going to be poured out on the earth, on the ungodly, on the unrighteous, since that's going to happen, what sort of people ought you to be, you Christians, in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. 
Amen. Peter continues, and he says, since we know that God's wrath will eventually bring justice, the scoffers will be silenced, the mockers will be put down, God's wrath will eventually bring justice, and he will bring it upon this earth, all wickedness on the face of the earth will be destroyed by the fire of God's wrath, this ought to cause us to stand at attention and not just get lazy, not ignore the fundamentals, not argue back at coach, right? We say, yes, coach, yes, coach, yes, coach, right? We look at God's word. We look at Peter and say, yes, Peter. Okay, okay, Peter. Yes, we're going to grow on those things. He says, since this is all true, that this destruction is going to come, he says, what kind of people should you be then? in holiness and godliness while we wait in hope for the coming of Christ. We don't give up our faith and say, gosh, you know, maybe they're right. Maybe Jesus isn't coming. No, we know he's coming. So what are we gonna do in the meantime? What are we gonna do as we wait for his coming? His coming may or may not come in our lifetime. We hope it does. But if we call ourselves Christians, we know that our future is good and it is sure. And our inheritance is, as Peter told us in his first letter, it's undefiled. It's unfading, it's imperishable, it's kept in heaven, that same heaven that we're awaiting with all of its righteousness, that our future, our inheritance is kept in that heaven where it awaits us. Verse 13, according to his promise, his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And if this is true, church, and it is true, it ought to change the way that we live today. How many of you guys ever been on a vacation? How many of you guys want to go on a vacation? (laughs) More hands are raised for that question. When you go on a vacation or when you have, do you just do life as usual? You go to work, you kind of do your same routine. Or as it gets closer, do you kind of change up your habits, your pattern, your day-to-day, and your schedule? Right? You change, right? You start packing, you start thinking, you start tidying up things. You, you get people to maybe come over and you know help with your dog or help with your garden or whatever it is. You start making plans. You're doing things. You're researching where you want to go when you get there. What you're going to do on day one and day two. You are planning. You're living for the future. Right? Not just reacting, but you're living for the future. That's what we do. We do that for vacation. We do that for retirement. We don't just live life as normal like there's nothing in the future. We start making plans. We make changes. We have a different approach to our week and our month. If you are a believer, we live for the future. We live with the hope of heaven where all righteousness dwells. That is at the forefront of our minds. We've been set free by Christ. Our future is good. Now, you've been called to a life of freedom, but that does not mean that we have the freedom to act like non-believers in this world. That's not what this freedom gives us. Peter's saying that we are to be fully convinced and reminded in our hearts and our minds of the gospel and what Christ has done for us. Because scoffers will be on the prowl. False teaching, worldly pleasures will be seeking to lure us away from finding our identity and our passion and our contentment in Christ. They're going to seek to make us ineffective. They're going to cause us to focus on secondary issues, worldly things, worldly pleasures, drawing our attention away from Christ and onto these other things that just don't matter. They want to make us ineffective looking for worldly gain, for distractions. But this world is passing away. 
And we are to be salt and light in this world because God's wrath will not be mocked forever. And there are people in this world that need to know of the love of Jesus Christ. We can't change their hearts. We can't open their eyes. But we can tell them about the love and grace of Jesus Christ. We can cast seed in water and then we can ask God by his grace and mercy to give increase. That is what we are to do. So this also means that because he is delaying, and he has delayed now for a couple thousand years, he's giving us more time. Because he's given us more time, we need to be the ones to take advantage of that time. Every moment, every day that he gives us, we ought to be living the lives that we should so that we can be effective and active ambassadors for Christ as long as the Lord allows using every moment that we have to glorify him, to spend our life, to pour ourselves out as a drink offering. So we are not free to live and act as the world does. We must not, as Romans 1 and Galatians 5 tells us, we must not exchange the truth of God for a lie. We must not suppress the truth, give in to sexual sin, idolatry, enmity, strife, causing problems, jealousy or envy and rivalry, dissensions, division, drunkenness, lies and deceit, gossip and slander, being rude and insolent and ruthless or heartless, prideful and arrogant, disobeying our parents, unsubmitted to God-given authorities, uncompassionate and impatient, but rather we must put on growing in our maturity, put on virtue and knowledge, but knowledge that has self-control, as Peter says. Steadfastness, joy, peace. We have to put on kindness and goodness, gentleness, humility, meekness, believing the best of others, being hopeful, being eager to bless even our enemies, being generous, not just with our money, but with our words and our actions. And church, this is a very tall and I'd even say impossible task for us to do this. How many of you have mastered this? How many of you mastered, because those are the fundamentals right there. How many of you guys have mastered the fundamentals? How many of you mastered even just one of those? I don't do any of those perfectly. I always have to go back to the fundamentals. None of us have mastered this. We all need to grow in our faith and our sanctification. And with great humility and dependence, we must come to God and ask him for the Holy Spirit to work the power of the gospel in our hearts. Because without the power of the living gospel, we're going to be stuck in our fleshly ways and thinking like a dog that returns to its vomit. We're just going to continue in our ways, just as the world does, as if God is not going to return in all of his power and glory. But this is not what we do. We, church, we press in because we know our future is good. Our future is good. Let's pray. Lord, we are amazed at the patience and the love that you show us. We see that list in Romans chapter 1, and it pierces our hearts. We see nearly all, maybe all the sins 
listed there. We've committed them all. And even as Romans 1 says, we know that those things deserve death. And here you are. You love your enemies. You loved us while we were still sinners. You sent your son to die for enemies, the unlovable, the ones who deserve to be rejected, the ones who deserve the the very wrath that we just read about, to have your wrath poured out upon this earth. We deserve to be one of the hundreds of thousands or millions that died in that flood. But yet, God, you've given us mercy. You've shown us your grace. You've taken us out of the miry pit and you set our feet upon the rock of Christ. And it's on Christ alone that we stand. It's because of him that we're more than conquerors. It's because of him that we have the victory. It's because of him that our future is good. And we look with hope to the new heavens and new earth that's going to be brought to us that is filled with righteousness. Nothing but goodness, nothing but purity and peace. We look forward to that day. But in the meantime... As long as you delay, we ask God that you'd help us to not be dismayed by and, and fooled by the mockers and the scoffers. They plant their seeds of doubt, and sometimes they make very convincing arguments. Help us. Help us be equipped and prepared to remind ourselves that you are indeed the creator of this entire universe. And so in that meantime, as you delay and continue to delay, we pray, God, that you would give us the boldness, the desire, and the opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ as much as we can, with as many as we can, in ways that honor and glorify you, and that uh, by the casting of our seed and watering, God, we pray that you would give increase. I know that in this room there are hundreds of people that, that this group of folks are praying for in their own individual lives, God, I pray that you would just uh, encourage all of us in our prayers, that you do hear our prayers. You are at work. Let us take seriously, God, the call of Christ upon our lives to be your ambassadors. We thank you, Lord. Thank you for your grace towards us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.